0: Really glad to be with you this morning. I've got a lot of joy. This is—I mean, I'm not as tall as Jeff. Oh, this is a high uh, podium. I'll sit on my tiptoes. I'm really excited to be with you today. I've, I've been praying this week with the Lord. I've—I've I've known um, Jeff had asked at the actually tail end of last year, "Hey, would you would you speak?" And so it's been percolating in my heart. You know me as a teacher. I love every part of the process of teaching. I love the thinking about it. I love the rehearsing, I love the preparation, and I love the delivery, and it's genuinely my joy to be with you today. And I was thinking about, do you remember back at the start of the year, David Wagner was here? I say start of the year like it wasn't three weeks ago. (laughs) But David Wagner, our dear friend, wonderful prophet, gift to our house, he shared a word with our church. He said a lot of really, really encouraging things. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to hop on YouTube and and watch it. It was a great, great service. But one of the things that he said that really stood out to me was a verse from Psalm 65. Psalm 65, verse 11, it says this, You crown the year with your bounty, and your carts overflow with abundance. And it got me thinking, are we ready for that? Like as a church, are we ready to have our year crowned with bounty, and to encounter a Lord whose carts overflow with abundance. Do you know what that means? That means when you're near him, all of his abundance falls off over you. AJ and I, one of our favorite restaurants in Toronto was a place called The Lone Star. It was right on Airport Drive. And they had just amazing fajitas. It was a Tex-Mex place. And you could always tell when somebody had been there because they couldn't help but smell like fajitas. Right, So you could not even eat there. Let's say you walked in to pick up a gift card for a friend. The overflow of the abundance, you would come out and you would be smelling like you just ate fajitas. You hadn't tasted of it, but the abundance was overflowing on you. And so my question to us, as a church, are we ready to have our year crowned with abundance? Now, did you notice that? There's safety in numbers. We get like a, you know, a mediocre amen and a... Mm, yeah, yeah. And there's safety in numbers. But what if I was to personalize that question? Are you ready for a year that would be crowned with abundance? Am I ready for that? I wonder if we have a comprehension of what that might look like. Now, David probably didn't know this, or maybe he did. You know, he's a prophet, but I should, should have asked him. But when he was delivering that, I don't think he knew, because I don't think we knew that we ended out last year, our month of December, our tithes and offerings came in at over a million dollars, which to my knowledge is the first time that has ever happened. So we're starting the year with an understanding that not only is it in Psalms, but it's also in our checking account. So are we ready to have a year crowned with bounty? One of my favorite teachers and thinkers is a prophet. His name is Graham Cook, another prophet. I I, I love prophets. Graham has this great phrase that he says. He, He says often, it's not enough that we believe, we have to live fully persuaded. And the reason I like that phrase is because it points to something that's been very real in my life. Have you ever noticed that there's often a gap between our thinking and God's thinking. A few of you, the rest of you are like, are you kidding me? I have the mind of Christ. I've reached full maturity. Why am I listening to you? There's often a gap between our thinking and God's thinking. How that often plays out in my life is I read something in the Bible, and without realizing I'm doing it, I tend to translate what I just read into how my life looks, rather than allowing what's in the Word to redefine how my life looks. You with me on that? Let me give you an example. So Psalm 128 verse 1 says, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to Him. And so we might say amen to that. We might read that verse and we might nod and we think, yeah, I'm blessed. Yeah, I walk in obedience to him. I fear the Lord. I'm blessed. But my follow-up question would be, by whose definition did you conclude that you're blessed? Our definition or his? And it's right about that moment when I ask that question that we begin to start shifting in our seats. Now here's the thing, stay with me through the discomfort for a second because we're not left to guess what God's definition of blessing might be because if we keep reading, he tells us. So the verse that we just read, which we previously amend, in part because of lack of context, gets trickier to amen when we keep reading. Same verse says this, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. Did you notice that? There's a definition of what the blessing looks like. This will be the blessing. Well, what is the blessing? It says here that your labor will be fruitful. That means what you do at work will produce a good yield. There will be so much satisfaction and purpose to your work life that it feels like a blessing to go to work. And not only that, but your work will result in blessing and prosperity. Not my words, the psalmist. Look, it says this, prosperity will be yours. But if we pay close attention, it's not just our work life that is marked by blessing, but our family life too. It says your wife will be fruitful and your children will flourish also. So if we stick with the word we realize God loves to color within the lines of what we think he means when he says blessing. As Graham says it's not enough that we believe we have to live fully persuaded. Here's what I've noticed is that I screwed this lid on way too tight. There you go. Behold the manner of man. Here's what I've noticed. If reading the Bible reveals there's a gap between our thinking and our living, the Bible invites us to think better thoughts. Now, let me be very clear right at the beginning. It is vital that we decouple our concept of blessing from our net worth. And here's why. Money is not synonymous with blessing. That's way too shallow a biblical interpretation to conclude that money is the be-all and the end-all of blessing. For example, I know many people with a far higher net worth than AJ and I, but the non-monetary quality of their life is often marked by something akin to bankruptcy. So their investments, their portfolio, their checking account, their savings account is just enormous but the quality of their relationships, their emotional outlook is deteriorated. And yet, if we're going to be honest and biblically accurate, we have to admit that blessing inescapably includes money. No amens on that one. We have to conclude, when we look at a biblical survey of the people that God drew close to, that were marked with a life of blessing, often they're marked by wealth. But again, (laughs) like most things in the Bible, it's not that simple. Because the Bible is equally clear about how easy it is to idolize money. And it's much more insidious than you might think. For example, often, without us realizing it, money becomes the gatekeeper in our minds of what's possible in our life. What do you mean, Alan? Well, have you ever had the thought of like, man, I would love to start a business. I don't have enough capital. Or I'd really love to buy a new house, but I don't have enough for a down payment. Or if I had this much in my savings, then I'd feel safe, I'd feel secure, feel like I have a little bit more comfort in my life. Anytime money dictates the level of our happiness or the potential we feel we're capable of reaching, it means we've idolized money and dethroned the Lord. But Alan... That's unrealistic, is it? I think it's biblical. For example, Jesus did not need money to feed the 5,000. In fact, the disciples brought up that point. When he's like, you feed them. They're like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many wages it would take to feed this number of people? Jesus wasn't intimidated by what he saw his father providing because he didn't have moolah. You say moolah in America? Cash, dough, bread quid, bucks, dollars. He didn't. He knew that heaven's multiplication could be applied to anything that was little. And so with a few fish and a few bread, pieces of bread, we saw heaven's multiplication mean that Jesus got his will done without money. See, there's a heavenly perspective found in the Bible that we might miss because we read it with an earthly mindset. How's everyone doing? Okay. It's vital that you and I develop a right relationship with money. Especially when we have a God who is determined to crown our year with bounty and his cart's overflowing with abundance. Because if we don't, We'll not know what to do when he moves towards us. Alan, give me a biblical reference for that. Peter, he's a fisherman. What determines whether it's a good day fishing or a bad day fishing? The amount of fish caught. And so Peter's been out fishing all night, catches nothing. And the Lord, who's a carpenter and has got a keen sense of humor, tells a professional fisherman to throw his nets on the other side. And Peter humors him and what does he catch? So much fish that they have to call in other boats and the boats begin to sink. And what is Peter's response to the Lord who draws near to him in abundance? Go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Did the Lord know he was a sinful man when he moved toward him with abundance? So the problem wasn't at the Lord's end, it was at Peter's thoughts. Peter had no capacity to contain the goodness that God wanted to bring him. And I fear you and I might be in the same situation if we don't make peace with a biblical understanding of money and wealth. Here's what I've learned. All of us have this invisible mindset called a pre-understanding. It's a theological term that basically means you and I have got a pre-understanding that colors or affects how we read Scripture. Our pre-understanding was given to us through our upbringing, through the church culture we've lived in, to the people that we listen to, to our own life experience. And so we all have this pre-understanding that affects our reading of the word. And with regard to money, it influences how we think about money before we ever think about money. Let me give you an example. I grew up in Scotland in a church culture that emphasized the danger of money and the pursuit of wealth. So at the back of my mind... Instinctively, like a reflex, whenever I would go to think about what the Bible has to say about blessing or money, instinctively, I'd think of verses like Proverbs 23 verse 4. Don't wear out, don't wear yourself out, trying to get rich." Or how about First Timothy 6:10? "The love of money is the root of all evil." My culture would only be too quick to follow up the next verse. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What is the subtext of that verse? Right? Or how about... I I mean, I remember. I remember. I probably would have been MJ's age. My son here, he's nine years old. I probably would have been his age. When I remember sitting in my parents' church, listening to a pastor teach the parable of Jesus in, I think it's Luke, Luke 12. Remember the story of the guy who's super resourceful, by the way, and prudent, plants, gets a huge harvest, just thinks, I don't have enough space to store all these, tears down his barns, brings newborns, builds them, puts them in, puts his feet up, and it's just like, I've been super successful. And do you remember what the Lord said to him? You fool! This very night, your life will be demanded from you. All of that informed my thinking about money. And do you know what conclusion I arrived at growing up? Having money is bad news. It's worldly. There's actually a spiritual maturity in being poor. And you know wealthy Christians? They're probably flawed people. Probably secret sin going on in their life. They probably got it through unjust gains and they're probably to be treated with suspicion. Do you know, do you want to know what else has hugely contributed to our pre-understanding about money? How much of it we have. For example, I've noticed that those who demonize others for having money always have less than the people they're demonizing. It seems we're always experts on how other people should be spending their money and we never stop to pause that God's given them the money to steward and not us. You're welcome. (laughs) Now here's the point I'm trying to make, is that our pre-understanding will often lead us to a different conclusion than Scripture. For example, with a pre-understanding like mine, I concluded that money is bad. And in doing so, I missed the very point of those verses. What these verses reveal is that money isn't the problem. It's our relationship with it. When we shift our security from the Lord To how much money we do or don't have, it leads to things like striving, character loss, and arrogance. The antidote to these verses isn't to run away from money. It's to hold a biblically balanced view of money. For example, the solution to the striving that the writer of Hebrews is warning us about, when he writes, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich, is actually found in Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. When Paul wrote to Timothy, and warned him that the love of money is the root of all evil. The solution wasn't that Timothy should then hate money, but rather that he should have the perspective that godliness with contentment is great gain. And finally, the lesson in Jesus' parable wasn't that the man was foolish with his money. He was actually prudent. He did everything that Dave Ramsey would tell you to do. He was remarkably wise. He didn't spend it all. He looked down the line, just thought, I've got nowhere to store this. I'm going to save this up. I'm going to steward it well. That wasn't the problem. It was where he put his trust. Jesus was pointing that his trust was in the wrong place. And Solomon, by the way, the richest man in history, had both money and perspective. And he wrote, Trust in the money, trust in your money, and down you go. But the godly flourish like leaves in spring. It's really important that we settle in our hearts that money in and of itself is neutral. But our relationship with it is not. And so there's a ditch on either side of that neutrality that can cause real trouble for Christians. On the one side, the ditch is idolatry. right? Where it's really clear warnings in Scripture. Not to place all our hope, not to idolize it, not to wear ourselves out trying to get rich, not to think that that is the answer to all of life's problems. And in our efforts to stay away from that ditch, the other side of that ditch, or the other thing that we could fall into, is the disdain of money. And as we've already talked about, it's a problem because the Lord wants to add increase to you. There's a danger you'll miss what he's doing and perhaps even curse what he's up to. The truth is, Money can be a wonderful decoration to our lives, but is a terrible foundation for our lives. Our foundation as believers must be the Lordship of Jesus. And if ever there was a point to amen in church, it would be that point, and a lot of you missed it. (laughs) Let me say again, and if you got a handkerchief, you can wave it. Our foundation must be the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is, after all, thank you, I appreciate that, Lord of all. I was telling my kids yesterday that John Arno, one of my spiritual fathers, would often say, and I love this, still says it to this day, is that money makes a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. So it's really important to us, Individually and as a community and a church that we work out a solid biblical understanding of money in our lives because we will be tested on what we believe about money for the rest of our lives. As Graham says, it's not enough that we believe but that we live fully persuaded. Over the next three weeks, that's right, Jeff Dollar has given me the platform for another three weeks. So for the next three weeks, bring some comfortable clothing, because God willing, it's my heart that we would spend some time together studying the Word of God to help us understand how God wants us to relate to things like money and blessing and wealth. But before I wrap up, I've got some questions I want to encourage you to play around with this week. okay? Because if all that happens is you come and listen to me for 20 minutes each week, it won't make a dent. It won't change the way you think. And so I want to give you homework. Sorry, I'm a teacher. It's not my fault. I want to give you some homework to ponder, to think. I'll put these questions up on our website at gracecenter.us, okay? But if you want to take photos or you want to write them down, you absolutely can. The first question, I want you to consider, spend some time in your families kicking these ideas around. But number one is, what comes into your mind when you think about the Lord crowning your year with bounty? Because he's intentional. He had a prophet bring that to us. So what would it look like for you? What would it look like for your family, what would it like for your extended family to have your year crowned with bounty by the Lord? Number two is, would you consider your life blessed? Now, again, these questions are essay questions. No, I don't mean that you have to write out an essay. I mean, they deserve your consideration more than a yes or a no. And I thought that some of you quick thinkers have already come up with an answer. So, if yes, by whose definition yours are the Lord's? And if not, what are you not seeing that the Bible points to, which is inherently yours? And then lastly, play around with this thought, because it's very, very hard to catch our pre-understandings. But what might some of your own pre-understandings regarding what the Bible has to say about money sound like? Do you want to know one of the easiest ways to identify your pre-understandings is listen to people you disagree with? right? And notice that, that, that kind of ninja-like reflex in your heart. What is that caused by? Your upbringing? Or the contradiction of your, of your understanding of scripture, which begets the question, is your understanding of scripture the correct one? So like, play around with these questions this week, and I will see you next week for even more annoying questions. <laughs> Let's pray, and then I'm gonna bring up AJ to close us out. Father, I thank you for the gift of the word of God, which is useful, Lord, for instructing us and for training us for righteous living. And whether we like her or whether we don't, Lord, money is integral to the way we live. And we want to be people who know how to live wisely. We want to be people, Lord, who partner with the kingdom of heaven and have a value that represents your heart and your value here on earth. And so, Lord, over the next couple of weeks, would you equip us, would you draw near to us, and would you give us a great time exploring the word of God together? And the people of God said, Amen.